Good morning, Willow Park Church. Welcome to our Sunday gathering together. I'm so pleased that you've joined us on this glorious day and also when our campuses are doing church on lawn. So that's going to be really exciting as well. So we're so blessed and excited that you've joined us. Let me pray as we begin our service. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence and thank you that we can celebrate the goodness of God and we can gather this morning and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as ordinary people, as we are, who are serving extraordinary God, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we will be able to bring a sacrifice of prayer and worship to you that gives you honour and praise. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the passion and the enthusiasm that you give us for you. Because, Lord, we want to be your servants. We want to reflect your goodness in this generation. We want to tell the whole world that Jesus Christ is alive and well today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hello, church. We're going to sing some... Um some songs and worship God this morning from uh, our homes, from the stage here um, in this church. And I ask you to join me in this um, as we sing, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. As we sing of his goodness, the redeemed, us, we're singing it and we're all agreeing together. And we're agreeing, amen, that God is good. So join me in song from your home. Um, Yeah, God, thank you. We can worship you, the one seated on the throne, the one who deserves all our worship, God. And we're the ones who don't deserve anything that you've done for us. But Jesus, we, I just come with open hands, um, surrendering to it. And I just give you thanks for the freedom that I have in you. So uh, we worship you and we declare that you are king. So in this life we're living 
Stay. 
So good to spend some time in worship and to celebrate the King, focus our minds on Christ and that peace and that joy that he gives us. Well, I want to pause for a moment and give thanks. Maybe you already have the emblems and you're sat looking at them. Maybe take a moment to go and uh, collect them and bring them. And as we do that, let's remember Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life on the cross for us. And Lord, we hold this, this small little piece of bread, this wafer in remembrance of your body that was broken. Lord, looking at this, it's hard to imagine that it represents all the violence, the pain, the agony of crucifixion. The brokenness of Christ. But Lord, in my mind, it does connect with me and connects deeply about the cost, the price that you paid and your willingness 
your willingness to truly sacrifice for us as the payment for our sin. Friends, the body of Christ that is broken for you, eat it in remembrance of him. Amen. I will never forget that moment when I walked out of the church having given my life completely and totally over to Christ. That that moment I felt clean. That's the power of the gospel. That God takes away our shame. He takes away our guilt. That Christ's blood cleanses us in that beautiful and remarkable way. A new beginning. It was quite... Unbelievable to experience that kind of deep cleansing that was tangible and real within my life. Changed me. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that takes away the sins of the world. Father, thank you for this and for your son who shed his blood to give us freedom. Amen. What a rich blessing. <sighs> Fantastic. Okay, we're going to go and hear the news right now with Courtney, all that's going on in Willow Park Church. And then we'll step back into our messages in Daniel. And we are stepping in to the powerful message of Daniel. If you're south, chapter 10. And if you're watching through 33, Chapter 11. Look forward to it. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us today. Here is your family news. Our Set Free Retreat is happening online this Friday and Saturday, April 23rd and 24th. Set Free is a weekend of intentionally meeting with Jesus through teaching, breakout groups, and listening prayer. It's a time where you can experience greater spiritual renewal and learn to hear and distinguish the voice of Jesus in your life. If you're feeling stuck and want to break free of old patterns and ways of thinking, then Set Free is for you. Learn more and sign up online at willowparkchurch.com set free. The Marriage Course is a free series of online sessions designed to help couples invest in their relationship and build a strong marriage. The Marriage Course will be starting this Monday, April 19th. It's free to sign up and you have the flexibility of watching the weekly video at a time that works best for you and your spouse. Learn more and sign up today at willowparkchurch.com marriage. Our in-person youth programs are happening again this week in the Cahoots Lounge. Grade 9 to 12, join us on Wednesday night, and grade 6 to 8, join us on Thursday night. Pre-registration is required for the Cahoots Lounge, and you can get all the details at cahoots.ca. We have some exciting news for all of you who love camping. You are invited to our big church campout happening July 9th, to 12th at Pines Bible Camp. 
We will also have additional camping dates available July 5th to 16th. This camping experience is for all ages, and we will have activities for kids and adults. So save the date on your calendar because this is something you don't want to miss. Registration will be coming soon, so watch your emails and our website for details. Rainbows is a special group that can help children, kindergarten to grade 6, heal the hurts caused by a loss through divorce, separation, foster care, death, or other life-altering events. At Rainbows, children can make friends with other kids who understand how they feel and the things they are going through. We will be running this program May 3rd to June 28th. Learn more and sign up online at willowparkchurch.com rainbows. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Well, here we are. We're beginning Daniel chapter 11. What a journey this has been for us as a community as we've worked our way through the book of Daniel and starting to understand the message of Daniel, which is all about that God calls his people to be faithful, absolute faithfulness to him. How are you doing in that regard? Are you feeling faithful? That actually God wants us to have a really deep sense of a different perspective about the world that we live in. Not an earthly perspective, but a heavenly, I could even say prophetic perspective of where we're seeing from heaven's perspective of what God is doing and the way that God is working. You could call it a new vision, a direct vision that causes us to utterly trust in the work of Christ and the work of God. And Daniel teaches us this, teaches us that God is sovereign, that God is Lord, that he's the great grand master, that there is a hope and a kingdom at the end. And we're moving towards that hope and we're moving towards that moment of kingdom. And we are now going to step into Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 <coughs> is arguably, and people have said this, one of the most difficult chapters in the whole of the Bible. And I've got the pleasure of teaching it to you. It's really interesting because Daniel has been down by the river. He's had an angelic visitation. God opens up the future to him. Remember that this is around the 6th century, in the middle of the 6th century, so the events that unfold in Daniel chapter 11 build on the other prophetic moments throughout Daniel. You remember the great statue. You remember the moments where the Lord revealed to Daniel about the and dreams and the, the rising up of the, of the ram and the goat and Persia and Greece. And then, of course, we spoke about a fellow called Antiochus the fourth, who took over Jerusalem and took over the temple and absolutely brought spiritual death and chaos to the holy city. It was the little horn that arrived and came and moved. Okay, now we're going to recap on all of that. But we're also going to take it a lot further as the book of Daniel moves forward. And chapter 11 is... Arguably, as many Bible teachers will tell you, one of the most complicated chapters in the whole of the Bible. 
Why? Well, because it deals with history. It deals with a prophetic word that Daniel received in, let's say, around 550 AD, but it directly goes through to about 150 BC, sorry, 550 BC through, of course, to 150 uh, BC and beyond. We don't need ADs. We're not into AD yet. We're firmly in BC. That's where we are. I live in BC, but before Christ, not beautiful British Columbia. You got that. So we're going to do a lot of history. And, and the Lord comes to Daniel and reveals in absolute unprecedented prophetic detail about what is going to happen. So you're going to have to work with me here. I mean, I know the children's department preparing the lessons for kids church looked at Daniel chapter 11 and went, ah, <clears throat> no. Well, basically, uh, the prophecy says that Jesus is coming and we'll do something remarkable and we'll just go there. Because really, when you start to unpack it, it's not complicated in one sense. Many people on YouTube make it immensely complicated. And many of those tabloid theologians that kind of pull ideas in different generations and throw it all together can appear to be quite complicated. But the chapter's quite straightforward. The first part of the chapter is a direct explanation of detailed events prophetically, that are going to happen between the North and the South Kingdoms. This is the kingdom of uh, Syria and the kingdom of Egypt. And why is this important? Because Israel is the, is the ping pong ball in the middle that gets thrown around backwards and forwards, you see. You have to understand that the first part of the prophetic... And the explanations of the prophetic is incredibly detailed. So you almost need to take the Bible and let's say the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Ancient History and put the two together and understand that ancient history is reflected in these verses in chapter 11. So it is unique and powerful because it reflects ancient history. Now, this is remarkable and you will see as I go through it how detailed it becomes. Having said that, around verse 36, boom, everything changes. Um, it just goes into the future. And so the book uh, here in Daniel chapter 11 moves into a very detailed building on the past prophecies, details of, of the geopolitical world, the world of politics around, you know, Turkey, Syria, Egypt, Greece, and brings in Rome towards the end. And then fast forwards to the end of time, Suddenly, when we're in a completely different zone, we're basically heading towards Armageddon. And then chapter 12, boom, we're right into the idea of judgment 
And the first time a double resurrection is described in chapter 12. So we go from terrible situations, fast forward to the Antichrist. Yes, the Antichrist. Opposing that powerful figure that arrives in the Middle East and commands such power and movement in the world. And then we go to judgment and God appearing and the resurrection. So, wow, quite a lot to go through there. So how are we going to start off? Well, I'm going to become Mr. History Teacher. Don't switch off because I know a lot of you love soap operas. You do. Come on. You used to watch Dallas. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, for those of you that are watching from England, EastEnders. For those of you who like to watch English soap operas, Coronation Street. For those of you who like kind of uh, battles of kingdoms and, and, and the world that we live in, you could call it a Game of Thrones. Although I've never watched Game of Thrones because I hear it's a little bit racy and I need to keep away from it. But I understand the premise of the story about kingdoms and powers and moods. Well, this is soap opera meet Games of Thrones meet the invading of the of all the Vikings, Anglo-Saxon history, the Tudors, all of that kind of crazy stuff that happens with kings and kingdoms that take place right here in the Bible. The soap opera of what is going to unfold. And the Lord spoke to Daniel about this. <clears throat> so let's start a journey from Daniel to the time of Antiochus the, uh, the fourth, Antiochus the fourth, and beyond to the edge of history. Here we go. We start at verse three, although I could have started at verse one and verse two easily, but time doesn't fully permit because I've better get a move on here. It is very simple, is that it talks about the rule of the Persians. Of which, of course, Daniel is writing under the rule of the Persians at that time. And he talks about four kings of Persia. Now, there weren't just four kings of Persia. And there is some debate about who these four kings were and who they represented. But it does talk about at a key time, the ruler of Persia will, with his great power, challenge what is uh, the kind of Greek kingdom and will attack and create the chain of events that create these events. This is interesting, although we've done a lot of work about Persia and Babylon throughout this. So I'm going to start at verse three. And this is where we hear the first prophetic utterance uh, about somewhere where we start to move forward. Of course, Verse 1 and 2 are about Persia and the four kings. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule the great authority and accomplish everything he set out to do. Well, remember, this is before this time. This is talking about 323 uh, uh, BC. And, of course, here is... Daniel having this prophecy in the 6th century BC. Who is this mighty king that will rise? Who is the one that suddenly comes? Who is this person they talk about? Well, it's no other than Alexander the Great. There he is, looking with his long 
shaggy hair, looking like he could be in the Beatles, but he was no Beatle. He was, of course, earlier a goat that came charging in and defeated the ram and moved forward. And he was powerful. He conquered Syria. He conquered the world all the way over to the Indus Valley. He was unstoppable. And in those years, in that decade, really, he just took over the world. He was ruthless. We call him Alexander the Great. The Iraqis Iranians, Afghanistans and the Indus area call him by the nickname Satan. So he wasn't very much liked. Satan. So they talk about, we talk about Alexander the Great, the great general. And they talk about when Satan turned up in their land because he was viewed in that way. And of course, the prophecy says that one will arrive. None other than Alexander the Great. And power passed into the hands of Alexander's four leading generals. You might say, well, didn't Alexander have a, um, a child? Well, he did, yes. Alexander III. And, and he had a brother, who uh, uh, Philip III as well, who was actually, um, they say, mentally challenged. And there was a kind of... A consort, something that looked after them. Well, pretty quickly after the death of Alexander, people moved in and murdered the brother, murdered the child and murdered the one set to look after him. So even there, they moved in. And these are the four generals. And these four generals, the power passed to the leading generals. And this is where the scripture says in the verse, the four winds, the four generals took over. But at the height of his power, verse four, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had. So it was fragmented. We know that about the four horns in the earlier goat prophecy. For his empire will be uprooted and given to others. His empire was divided into four. But of course, what happens now in the prophetic, it doesn't talk about the other areas of the empire, the Babylonian and out towards Iran and Iraq and that, well, that area and Afghanistan and the Indus Valley. It doesn't talk about those areas because the prophetic spiritual activity is about the people of Israel. Because Israel is set where three continents meet, where three great roads meet, where the world kind of collides in what we call the fertile crescent, where life uh, prospered. And right there, God situated Israel perfectly in the position, which was great, but also not so great when you've got two kingdoms of what used to be one kingdom, which is Four generals with four areas where they start to play ping pong with Israel. And so the focus shifts to God's people, those who have the power, the kings of the king of the north, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And in the north, we have there the kings of of, um, that start to reign and rule and um, 
uh, Antiochus and that whole group of kings, the Seleucid uh, dynasty, and to the south, the Ptolemies. The Seleucid dynasty are to the north in Syria, and the Ptolemies are to the Egyptian, and they ruled that whole region all the way down, actually, you'll be interested, to uh, Lake Victoria. Massive two empires that existed. And these empires would exist all the way through to 150 BC. So we have to go through quite a few hundred years to get to the key moments. But what is interesting is that the prophecy in chapter 11 deals with the ups and downs, the marriages, the battles, the pains, the backwards and forwards of what would lead to the moment where Jerusalem is taken over. Setting the scene eventually for the Romans and setting the seed scene for the coming of Christ. You see how it all fits together and you can see what kind of detail takes place. So Judah was right in the middle of this story in the 3rd and 2nd century BC. And you imagine being Judah. Judah was caught in the crossfire all the time. Judah was passed backwards and forwards. Armies marching up and down. Battles taking place all the time. I mean, if I had been Judah, I would have been close to God. Because with all the political change and all the armies and all the battles, you needed to trust God. And that's true for us right now. We, with all the change, have to trust. So Judah was passed backwards between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, between Egypt and between the Syrian uh, Greeks. So the struggle between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So basically, having moved from Alexander and the generals, the prophecy now moves into into the actual battles between the kings of the north and the south, verses 5 through to 20. The king of the south will increase in power, that's the king of uh, Egypt, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule the kingdom with great strength. So there was a power struggle that took place, and we know that from history. To start, the king of the south is Ptolemy I. He had taken Egypt from the point of Alexander's death and the king of the north was Seleucius I. So we've got the two kings ready. It's there. The scene is set. Basically, for they're going to punch it out. They're going to fight. They're going to swap in marriages. They're going to lend their daughters and the daughters are going to come back. People are going to be betrayed and it's all in the prophetic utterance. Now, this is why some critical theologians who aren't, don't have a high regard of scripture and do not believe in the breath of God in scripture and its prophetic power simply say, this is impossible. This must have been written after the effect. And because it was Written after the fact, it's so detailed. Now, I don't accept that. 
I believe that this is here with such detail that it teaches us something very clear. God is in control of history and Daniel received the prophetic detail that is remarkable. And so the stage is set. And here is the legendary Ptolemy I. Of course, he was Greek, but he now looks like a pharaoh and they become they rule for 300 years, 300 years. Do you know who the last of the Ptolemies were? You've heard of her. You've seen her on the silver screen. Her name was Cleopatra. There were a number of Cleopatras, by the way. And some of the Cleopatras, like Cleopatra, ruled Egypt and were part of the Ptolemies. And the beautiful thing about this is, of course, we all know Cleopatra because of Mark Antony and because of the great battles in the Roman Empire. And of course, she committed suicide. And she was the end of 300 years, starting with this, this guy. Of course, the actual Egyptians didn't really like the Ptolemies. And often they would be uprising. And even the prophetic word picks up on this. And some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. And the daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance. But she will lose her influence over him and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. Goes down to this kind of detail that they actually tried to solve all their problems by Marrying each other and passing daughters. That's, a, that's always been done. It was done in ancient Europe. It was done in Britain. It was done the alliances between England and Germany and so on. That's why most of the royal family in England have direct descendants to the czars and the rulers of Germany and Russia and their cousins because they built alliances through marriage. It was going on right here in Daniel uh, 11 verse 6. And that's true. Some years later, 250 BC, a dynastic marriage was planned and pulled together. And this really worked well. Bernice was sent to marry and to engage Bernice and she, she, she married. But unfortunately, what happened was uh, that uh, Antiochus, not the one that we'll get to Antiochus for, reconciled with his ex-wife and promptly she poisoned her current husband. She poisoned Bernice and her sons was poisoned and she will not return her power. So we can see the prophetic linking with the historic about how they bumped off ex-wives and got rid of people so that they could, could rule. But when one of their, her relatives became king of the south, king of Egypt, that was, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat. So actually, we know that that when Ptolemy III came, which was Bernice's brother, came to the throne, he was not happy about the death of his sister. And he used that as excuse to invade Syria. And he waged war against the son. 
uh, Seleucius II, who had inherited the northern throne. So you can see what's going on. Again, raging. However, the sons of the kings of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. We're not quite sure what that means. But it means that, that there was a push this way and there was success and he actually got into Syria. He recaptured gold and gods of Egypt and brought them back from the northern kingdom. There was a bit of that going on. A little bit like the, the goblets and the gold from the temple went to Babylon and so on. Uh, this happened in the ancient world. However, and, but it, prophetic. And then Seleucus III, who ruled from 227 BC to 200 and, uh, 223 BC. And one of the most famous of all Seleucid rulers comes onto the scene, uh, Antichus III, called Antichus the Great, who had a long reign and ruled. So this was Antichus III's father. Now, you might just be overwhelmed at this point. Who's who and what's going on? Well, this is really important when this takes place because Antichus III, or Antichus the Great, was the one who took Jerusalem and Judea away from the Egyptians, setting the scene for the line of events that would eventually lead to the coming of Christ. And so the story of Antichus III, the great reign continues through, all the way through to verse 19. So from that verse where we were at, what, 11, to verse 19, it's all about the exploits of this king. And how the, the, the power shifted and moved. And the, probably the reason there's so much emphasis in the scripture about uh, Antiochus III is because it's to do with the politics of Jerusalem now. And it's starting to move in that direction. And verse 11 describes what comes to be known as the battle of Raphae or the battle of Gaza in 217. And this great battle took place as the two armies met and they battled together. Here it goes. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat him. So then the king of the south will rally a force against the king of the north. This was a moment when Egypt defeated the north. Actually, historically, it happened, of course, at the great battle in Gaza. But... It didn't last long because of the arrogance, the courage, the absolute power of Antiochus III, not the fourth. We'll get to that nasty one, the little horn in a minute, but it was pushed back. And at that time, there will be a general uprising against the king in the south. So they won a victory. And the reason they won the victory was because for the first time in a long time, the Greek pharaohs that from Egypt, who ruled the Egyptians, used the Egyptian 
uh, soldiers. Up until then, they'd used Greek mercenaries and other Libyans and so on. But now they let the normal Egyptians fight. They became, yes, we can fight. Let's get rid of these usurpers who actually lasted for 300 years. Let's get rid of this family, the Ptolemies. Let's get rid of them. And so there was great unrest. And Daniel prophesies right down to the great unrest in Egypt. Violent men amongst your own people will join them to fulfill this vision, but they will not succeed. Ptolemies were around for a long time. Verse 14 is obscure in detail, but acknowledges that these great events caused turmoil in the Jewish people. We are not sure to whom the violent men refers, but we do know that there were political powers at play at this time in Jerusalem. Basically, they were, they were getting rid of high priests, putting high priests in power. They were using the gold of Jerusalem as uh, negotiating. And there was a lot of, uh, of havoc around the priests and the power of the priests that was taking place and happening. But in the meantime, he set himself up in the beautiful land. Here we go. Now, here we got Antiochus III is now in the beautiful land. Antiochus never tired of his ambition and, 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 and according with the prophecy of verse 18, started uh, uh, annexing parts of Asia Minor, the Greek islands. He invaded Trace, which is basically Greece. And all of this began to raise the attention of a new power on the scene, the new guy on the block, Rome. So he had conquered Egypt, just about Egypt, and the Romans turned up and they said, whoa, time out. Go back. We defeat you. You've got to pay tribute. We're going to bankrupt you. Leave Egypt alone. That was probably because of things like grain and wealth and so on that came from Egypt. Leave Egypt alone now. We've got an agreement with Egypt. You go back up to the north and you behave yourself. Well, Antiochus III was in a rage. He went off towards the east. He raided another temple out there towards Babylon and he died. He completely died at that moment. And then we have a power struggle that comes in. And after this, he will turn his attention to the coastlands and conquer many cities. This is what I was talking about. But the commander from another land, who is this commander? Rome. Will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. In fact, the Roman leader that arrived took a stick and Antiochus III, who was pretty proud... He drew a circle around him and he said, Antiochus III, stay in your circle. Rome's on the scene. The empire is arriving. It'd be a while until the empire completely rules, but the empire has massive influence already over these kingdoms. And is, is, is remarkable. So then... The prophecy changes. We're at verse 21. And then we have the climatic king of the north, which is Antiochus 
boar, the little horn, the one you remember who brought pigs into the temple. Do you remember when I taught you about that he came and he banned Judaism? Sacrifices in the temple were cut off and everything went bad. If you got circumcised or your child got circumcised, you and the child were thrown off the walls of Jerusalem. He put an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. It was defamed. And that's where a group called the Maccabees rise up and things start to happen. And this little horn, who is the kind of the kind of forerunner for the idea of the Antichrist. Here he is. This is his, his bust. Here he is. He looks a pretty miserable fella here, I think. But he brought, he brought such pain, such desolation, such agony to Jerusalem. Tens of thousands were killed. The temple was violated. It was horrific. He brought evil, evil into Jerusalem. But isn't it encouraging that Daniel sees all of this happening? Now we're around 150 BC and we've traveled probably what about 400 years. And we've traveled definitely through 300 years of prophetic utterance of changes of relationships and marriages, of battles, of movements of kings, of the arrival of the Romans. I'm sorry to have taken so long on this, but it is known as one of the most complicated parts of the Bible. Other people have different takes on it. I've gone with a quite in-depth kind of theological approach linked with ancient history and the prophetic to show you what is going on. And so Antiochus arrives. And according to Daniel, the struggle between the South Egypt and the North Syria culminated with the contemptible person, this despicable individual who comes. And the next to come to power will be the despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip. Now, when it means not in line for royal succession, you see, it would have been Antiochus is the third brother who should have gone to the um, uh, throne because that's the way it kind of worked. But uh, the young, the brother also was going to rule. But mysteriously, the uncle died mysteriously. And then the two, the cousin and the sons ruled together and then one died and then Antiochus the fourth came. So there was always rumour about that he wasn't, he was a usurper. He took it in a, in a bad way. He was full of, he was a complete utter nut actually. Absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy the things he did and vile, um, horrible. So what does this teach us? I don't need to go into the next section of verses because I've unpacked the little horn quite a lot. I've explained about Antiochus IV and all he did in the temple. So you can read on till we get to verse 36 when everything goes, woo, amazing. 
amazing. So what can we learn? Well, what we learn is this, that when it comes to the covenant people and Israel and that that place, Jerusalem, where Christ would eventually die on the cross. Everything that I've just explained, the soap opera of the north and the south, the giving and the killing, the sea battles and the invading, the great battles over time, the battle over thrones, the deceit and the evil. Is all building a road to the coming of Jesus. It's all set in the chain of events that lead to the perfect timing when Christ shall come. And it tells us that no matter what we feel, and it's tough and hard, is that God is Lord over history. This is important. And this is designed to comfort people. That we should feel encouraged. We should feel comforted. We should know this. That prophecy in advance builds trust in the word of God. So I've given you a lot of ancient history, which you can check. Absolutely. There's so much more I could give you. I could talk for two hours on the ancient history and all the different kings and movements. But I've given you the headlines because it builds trust That if this was given to Daniel 400 years earlier, you can trust the spirit and the word of God. That God's word is God breathed and the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus are true. And the prophecies about the second coming is also true. Of course, we have to trust God and it encourages us. But then suddenly we go to the edge of history. It's like this. When I flew from London to Canada once, I had a terrible flight. Just about over Baffin Island, the pilot came out and he said, I want to tell you we're heading into a storm now. It's going to last for about an hour and a half and we'll be fine. The plane is designed for this, but you are going to experience the worst turbulence. So settle down. There'll be no drinks, no food. Carry on watching the entertainment and know that it's going to be lumpy, bumpy and difficult. Suddenly, the plane started to shake. And literally for an hour and a half, my prayer life was amazing. I felt closer to God than ever. And mainly because I thought I was going to meet God. And the plane just shook for an hour and a half. But I knew we were going to hit it and I knew we were going to go through it because the plane is designed to cope with that kind of turbulence. That I felt an element of peace because I knew that the outcome was going in that direction. This is Bible prophecy. It's about that outcome that is going in that direction. It's like a telescope with three parts. You've got Daniel at one end. He's seeing what's happening now. You've got the Ptolemyne and the North and the South prophecies about what will happen in that period. And then suddenly you jump forward. You jump forward to the king who will do as he pleases. Daniel eleven thirty six to 45. Now we go to the edge of history. 
Now we go to the end of time. Now, and there's, it's difficult because there's no transition in the verses. And theologians admit this. But generally, we know that the king will do as he pleases, exalt himself and claim to be greater than every God, even blaspheming the God of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of the wrath is complete, for what he has been determined will surely take place. This is not Antiochus IV, that horrible little horn in the temple, because The rest of the verses describe events that never happened in history, that never took place, that we don't know. Now, we know the early events happened because I've just told you about it. But these events haven't happened. And that's why we talk about the rise of Armageddon and we talk about the rise of the end. There's no historical um, evidence for any of these events from verse 36, because suddenly we've got Daniel has gone. Wow. He doesn't know he's done this, but he's gone beyond. He's gone to the edge of time. He's gone to the other thing where the larger than life Antichrist appears, where he exalts himself above God, where he's full of pride and power. Where God alone knows the time of the end of the judgment and the end of time. See? And so then at that time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. And the king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers and the vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. What it describes in these verses has not happened in history. And this is where we know that this individual, the larger than life, Antichrist, appears. But where does it go in chapter 12, which I'll get to next week? It goes straight to judgment, resurrection and the first time in history of the Bible, that it mentions a double resurrection. That we really get into it about the coming kingdom, the coming hope and eternity. So what have I done here? I have attempted, I love ancient history. I have attempted to at least take you from Daniel in the 6th century through to Alexander after the Persian Empire, the kings, to Alexander, with all the details of the kings, with then the split of the kingdom to the fore, and then the battle between north and south, Egypt and Syria, the two kingdoms, and then the arrival in the temple of uh, Antiochus IV, and then boom, we fast forward to the end. So, This is quite a thing, isn't it? And it should remind us that God is in control. It should remind us that God is sovereign over time. It should remind us that life is difficult, but the Lord has a plan. And it reminds us. Now, there are lots of other different interpretations here, but I've kept to the main line academic 
theological views, not the highlights and this and that, but really to how evangelical academia approaches these verses. There are other ways that some approach it, and they, the prince of the covenant who was killed, they talk about that being a Christ figure. It was probably a high priest that was murdered. It talks about these things, but but I've tried to give you confidence in the prophetic nature of scripture, confidence that God knows what on earth is going on, and confidence that there is a glorious end to this story. And this glorious end comes next week. Chapter 12. I'll bring in the angels, the river. We'll have some resurrection. We'll have the judgment on those who have brought horror to the people of God and the wrath of God coming. And we'll have the restoration of all things. It is exciting stuff. But it leads us only to Jesus. Because the stage is set for Christ to come to Jerusalem with the rule of an empire. And at that time, in no other time in history, the Roman roads roads were built, the infrastructure existed. And when the church went out to evangelize, could reach the whole world. Today... We're at a key moment in history and there's urgency. The whole world can hear the gospel, not through roads, but through the internet. We're at a key moment in history when the church is reaching and making a difference. And I want to encourage you to step in. Are you ready? Are you on fire? Are you right with God? Can I ask you, change your subject slightly. We're running a set free This coming weekend, Friday and Saturday, check out all the information. Don't allow your life to be held down with garbage, with rubbish, with guilt, with shame. Sometimes we don't even know we've got this stuff until we actually learn about spiritual warfare and spiritual battle and how Christians get tied up and messed up. We're still in a battle and Set Free is designed to teach you about spiritual warfare So why don't you sign up and join in and make sure your heart is pure and right and you're prepared with the weapons that God has given us to live in this age as we face the coming age of the edge of history. Father, thank you for our time and thank you for the power of um, prophecy, the uniqueness of chapter 11, Daniel. And thank you, Lord, that you are with us. And we pray, encourage us to believe that you are Lord over history. Even though there is a soap opera going on in the world, there is a solid rock, a solid hope, a solid future in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Keep connected. And Jesus is the answer for the world today.